Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Dr. Asma Barlas, and we will be talking about her book, Believing Women in Islam, Unreading Patriarchal Interpretations of the Quran, the newest edition published by the University of Texas Press in 2019. Professor Barlas's career spans decades and could serve as a kind of oral history episode of its own. She joined the Politics Department of Ithaca College in 1991 and will be retiring at the end of spring semester 2020, though by the time you're listening to this podcast, she may have already retired. She has served as the founding director of Ithaca College's Center for the Study of Culture, Race, and Ethnicity, and has also held the Spinoza Chair in Philosophy at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She received her BA in English Literature and Philosophy from Kinaid College and an MA in Journalism from the University of the Punjab in Pakistan and an MA and PhD with distinction in international studies at the University of Denver. Much of her work engages with different forms of violence, specifically colonial, sexual, religious, and secular. Her first book called Democracy, Nationalism, and Communalism, The British Legacy in South Asia, which was published in 1995, traces the genealogy of Pakistan's militarism and India's electoral democracy to British colonial rule. The present book, which is the subject of our discussion today, was published in 2002, and since then has remained an enduring work of scholarly literature on the subject of Quranic scriptural hermeneutics in the English language. The revised edition, published just last year, has two new chapters, titled Abraham's Sacrifice in the Quran and Secular Feminism in the Quran. I won't say too much in this little introduction because we'll have ample opportunity to hear from Dr. Barlas herself. And so without further ado, I now welcome Professor Asma Barlas to our podcast. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for joining us today. Well, first, thank you, Asad, for inviting me to do the podcast. I know how much time and energy it's taken for you to line it up, and so I appreciate it. It's a great honor to have you, Professor, on our podcast. I've been reading your work for many, many years, um, at least a decade. And so to be, to be having the opportunity to, to highlight your work and interview you is a great honor of mine. Um, you are one of the leading thinkers in our contemporary day on Quranic hermeneutics. 
But before we explore some of the substance of, of your thought and ideas, many of us would be curious to know uh, where this career path began and what led you here, your, your intellectual genealogy, so to say. Well, there's a difference between my intellectual genealogy and my career trajectory somewhat. So maybe I'll just focus on the first one. And sure. I'd say that it's been shaped by a series of both unfortunate and fortuitous factors. I was educated in uh, Catholic convents and graduated from a Presbyterian college in Pakistan, like my parents. And we spoke English as a first language at home. Uh, so I grew up with a decidedly Eurocentric and colonialist mindset, uh, which I've spent several years excavating so as to be able to grow in other directions. Um, I think while I learned a very little of value or historical truth about Islam in my earlier education, uh, at home I was taught to read the Quran in Arabic starting at the age of 11. But since the Malvi Sahab didn't know Arabic, I didn't know what I was reading <laughs> until I came across a translation by Daud when I was about 16. Um, but as I found out years later, it's one of the more problematic ones. So developing a fuller sense of the Quran has taken me decades. And it's this engagement that I would say has most shaped my religious and intellectual sensibilities. Uh, the career path, uh, yes, it began in the foreign service. I was kicked out on the orders of um, President uh, Ziaul Haq for having criticized him. Then I worked briefly as the assistant editor of The Muslim, which was an opposition newspaper at the time. And so teaching is my third career, and in some ways I've enjoyed it the most. So now moving on to the book. Thank you for that, Professor. Um, for our listeners... Um, this is a very, very uh, rich text, and so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of uh, elaborate on how it's divided. It's divided into three parts. Part one is called Texts, Contexts, and Religious Meaning. Part two is called God, the Prophets, and Fathers. And part three is called Unreading and Rereading Patriarchy. And so the way I wanted to structure our discussion is parsing through each of these thematically. So mm -hmm. part, in part one, Professor... You're very clear that your project is one that will privilege the text of the Quran as well as its hermeneutics over other forms or methods of interpretation. And you state right off the bat that, quote, this book is as much a critique of sexual slash textual oppression in Muslim societies as it is a concerted attempt to recover what Layla Ahmed calls the, quote unquote, stubbornly egalitarian voice of Islam and to locate it at, to locate it as a legitimate countervoice to the authoritarian voice of Islam about which we hear so much these days, end quote. And I think this gets to the core of your argument, which animates much of the book, mm -hmm. which is namely that the, the Quran is a, a polysemic voice, that it has multiple interpretations, and that, that it, 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 is, it can be egalitarian, it can even be anti-patriarchal. And you say that, quote, in order to understand patriarchal readings of the Quran, we need to study the relationship not only between hermeneutics and history, but also between the content of knowledge and the methods by which it is generated, end quote. Um, and so my question, I guess, to, to, to start this discussion is mm -hmm. that, um, you know, when it comes to Quranic hermeneutics and method, what is it that you are seeking to critique 
and what are the alternative methodologies that you are asking your readers to take? Well, essentially, I'm critiquing dominant interpretations of the Quran that uh, allow Muslims to associate God with women's abuse and oppression. And of course, most Muslims may not think it's so oppressive to claim that God has made men superior to women and prefers them to women. Um, but I feel that such a view is at best theologically indefensible and at worst sacrilegious since it makes God a partisan in uh, men's sexism and misogyny. I also think that such a view is unacceptable from a strictly interpretive and hermeneutical perspective um, since it arises from focusing selectively on only those six or so verses and partial verses out of a total of 6,236 in the Quran that uh, give men and women some different rights. Um, and such readings also fail to contextualize these verses or to accept that we can interpret them differently than, the, than they have been interpreted in the past. And what I find ironic is that the same Muslims who insist on the fixity of the Quran's meanings uh, like to boast that Arabic is so rich that it has a hundred words for a camel. They even admit that the Quran has at least two levels of meanings, and if they incline to Sufism, that each verse has thousands. So only when it comes to men's rights does Arabic suddenly become plain sense and monosemic, and the Quran, the only text in the world's history, uh, to have just one fixed and transparent meaning. So those are the tendencies I'm critiquing. As far as my own methodology, well, firstly, I acknowledge that there's a relationship between meaning and method, uh, so that what we take the Quran, or for that matter, any text to be saying, depends on who reads it, how, and in what sorts of social, political, and historical contexts and circumstances. I also take it as a given that languages and texts are polysemic, and that interpretation is, quote, an open process which no single vision can conclude. That's uh, from Paul Ricoeur. Um, more to the point, I read the Quran in light of its descriptions of God, because after all, the Quran is God's word. And I feel we ought not to ascribe ideas to it that run counter to its claims about God. So, for instance, it says God is one, God is just, God is incomparable. And so I read the Quran in light of uh, these precepts of uh, divine unity, justice, and incomparability. To give just one example, <clears throat> since God is unlike all else in creation, and since the Quran forbids using similitude, that is to say comparisons for God, or calling God Father, um, I take God to be minimally beyond sex and gender. And since God rejects patriarchalization, in other words, God rejects being a patriarch, I take the Quran's own episteme, uh, and I use the word loosely, to also be anti-patriarchal. So on this note... Uh, I've applied a comprehensive definition of patriarchy to the Quran, which it appears no prior reader had done. At most, Amina Wadud had argued in her book that it's, quote, neutral to social and marital patriarchy, though without clarifying what she meant by the term. 
Um, the way I define it, patriarchy has um, uh, has appeared in two major forms. One is as the historical tradition of uh, rule by the father slash husband, which in its um, religious iterations uh, draws on depictions of God as both male and as father. And the other is, is a more modern politics of um, sexual differentiation that privileges men and discriminates against women because of their biology. So this half of the definition I borrow from my uh, colleague and friend, Zila Eisenstein. Uh, lastly, I've drawn on some criteria the Quran itself suggests, uh, like reading it uh, intratextually, that is as a whole, contextualizing some of its provisions, since it refers to the what Kenneth Cragg calls necessarily periodic nature of some of its content. I privilege its foundational ayat, and I search for the best in its teachings, because these are all things the Quran urges us to do. And I know that we may differ on what is best, but my own view is that an exegesis which offends against God's self-disclosure or ignores the Quran's holism and or the context of specific verses is uh, contextually a misreading. So it's based on this approach that I've tried to illustrate that the Quran doesn't advocate patriarchy and in fact that its foundational teachings incline towards sexual equality. And as for the hierarchy verses, I argued that these reveal uh, an infinity of traces. I've borrowed the phrase from Gramsci of the 7th century tribal Arab patriarchy to which God first spoke, but which, as we know, has long since passed into history, along with its specific forms of male authority and gender hierarchy. Professor, so if I can, if I can uh, take that further, right, one of the things that you talk about is how historically um, Muslims have almost uh, because of these sort of, you know, overarching uh, patriarchal norms have have contributed to a closure. Um, and so you look at this, you look at what you call textuality, the relationship between texts, intertextuality, as well as extra textual contexts like the state, law or tradition. So with reference to power and its role in the construction of this kind of interpretive knowledge, um, would you be able to elaborate your, on your argument as to how these factors contributed to this closure on how Muslims can interpret the Quran today? Well, I said this is a long and complex subject, but briefly I wanted to stress that our understandings of the Quran have been shaped uh, partly by our religious and political history. Um, in other words, that there is a relationship between Quranic exegesis and the context in which it was produced. So, for instance, some early Muslim rulers uh, became habituated to using religion for their own ends, and some of them even promoted certain approaches to the Quran over others. And an example that we come across is the Khalifa al-Mamun, who declared uh, the Mutazila's uh, claim that God had created the Quran in time to be the official view, even though it was a minority position. And as we know, he even persecuted the ulama who disagreed with it. Um, in a different way, in almost all the juristic schools uh, focused not so much on uh, actual knowledge of the Quran in interpreting it, which I find very odd, 
as on honing a method that, as Brandon Wheeler describes it, involved reading backward through the work of earlier generations. And of course, such a practice then imposed a methodological closure on how the Quran could be read. Um, similarly, we find that Al-Shrafi, uh, the ubiquitous Muslim jurist, initiated the practice of interpreting the Quran through the Hadith and even gave these and the Prophet's Sunnah precedence over the Quran. So interpreting the Quran by the Quran, which is what the Mutazzala did and which is also what I do, is viewed as heterodox. And then finally, uh, from uh, Fazlur Rahman, uh, we've learned uh, how a very thriving philosophical tradition and the exercise of independent reasoning or ishtihad were gradually stifled and even generated the canard that the gate of ishtihad had been closed. Though, as he points out, there's no record of who closed it and when exactly or even why. And these are some of the ways in which Quranic exegesis became the preserve of only a handful of male scholars over time. And it's still a small elite that defines its meanings for the rest of us today. And we could say that perhaps this is no different from, uh, you know, what's happened historically in Jewish and Muslim communities. But personally, what I find galling is that the Quran doesn't ordain a clergy or an interpretive community whose job it is to interpret it. Rather, the Quran calls repeatedly on all believers to struggle to know the ayat, the signs of God, uh, both in the Quran and in ourselves. This is a great transition to part two of the book, God, the Prophets and Fathers. Uh, you begin that part, particularly chapter four, by examining the nature of divine self-disclosure in the Quran, and you make a powerful case against representations of God as a father or as a male. And this much we can say that all Muslims accept as fundamental. Um, but you write that in spite of the Quranic rejection of God as a father or male figure, that there has been a masculinization and anthropomorphization of God through certain theological and spiritual discourses, as well as through patriarchal language. And so I was, I was wondering if we can talk a little bit about uh, desacralizing the concept of father, quote unquote father, whether real or symbolic. You know, you write that the Quran challenges representations of fathers as surrogates of a divine patriarch by rejecting the myth of God the father. Likewise, the Quran challenges the concept of father right or father rule by refusing to sacralize the prophets as real or symbolic fathers, end quote. And I, what I found most interesting is that you make this point by rereading the Quranic narratives about Abraham and Muhammad, uh, or Ibrahim and Muhammad. Uh, you have a whole chapter, and this, this chapter for our listeners is in the revised edition, about how the story of Abraham's sacrifice can be reread through, through a new light where the symbol of you know, God as father is displaced. And you, and you draw from Ibn Arabi, Kierkegaard, Derrida, um, so I was wondering how exactly you read reread this story, and what does it conclude for your hermeneutics? Okay, the one thing um, before I talk about the story is that uh, I find uh, one of the most troubling developments in Islamic theology uh, to be this uh, masculinization, engenderment, and sexualization of God, uh, as uh, you've pointed out, and as we know. Um, if God is unique and we can't compare God to others or call God father, so how do we Muslims end up, you know, uh, masculinizing God? And at a linguistic level, 
You know, it's because the Quran uses words like he and his for God. And unfortunately, many Muslims see this as evidence of a male God. I've certainly had a group of young Pakistani British boys shouting in my face uh, when I said that this is merely a linguistic convention. After all, the Quran is in Arabic and Arabic is a human language with its own peculiarities. So it's hardly a yardstick uh, for judging or describing divine reality. So um, as far as the story of uh, Abraham's near sacrifice of his son, I think most uh, Muslim exegetes speak of this sacrifice from Abraham's perspective. And they believe it underscores his powers of life and death over his son, whom, of course, the Quran doesn't name. Uh, In other words, they read this story as a patriarchal narrative that glorifies the father. And I read it as exactly the opposite for several reasons. Uh, First, though, I should clarify that God doesn't tell Abraham to sacrifice his son as God does in the Hebrew Bible. Rather, Abraham in the Quran has a dream which he shares with his son, whom he then asks, well, son, what do you think of this dream? And the son replies that if it is God's will, he is ready to be sacrificed. So for me, the Quranic account establishes three things. Um, Abraham can't sacrifice his son without his son's consent. Uh, The son's consent to being sacrificed means that the son is also making a sacrifice. And this being so, Abraham's rights as a father are not absolute, rather they are subordinated to the rights of God. So he's not a patriarch in the traditional uh, sense of the word. And here I should point out that when Abraham's father has him thrown into a fire or threatens to have him thrown into a fire, it is God who saves Abraham. And when Abraham sets out to sacrifice his son, it is God who saves Abraham's son from Abraham. And so these are some of the ways in which, and since God is not father, we can't say that the divine father has rescued sons from their fathers. So these are some of the ways in which I read this as an anti-patriarchal parable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So moving to the next part, um, unreading and rereading patriarchy. Chapter seven of the book begins by arguing that the Quran... Oh, sorry, that rather while the Quran, quote, recognizes biological differences or sexual differences, it does not espouse a view of sex or gender differentiation or gender dualisms, end quote. Um, Meaning that the Quran does not endow any symbolic meaning to biological sex um, as patriarchy often does. So how does right. the re- how does how does your reading of the Quran show that it, that it, it quote, establishes the principle of the ontic equality of the sexes, and how does the Quran treat sexual sameness and difference, um, and how does this translate onto its view of parental and that these are a lot of questions so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll keep it at the first question and then we'll maybe break break it down a little bit so was, the first question in this in this multifaceted uh, question is. 
how does your reading of the Quran show that it establishes the principle of ontic equality of the sexes? Let's start there. Okay, well, <clears throat> the language about sexual sameness and difference uh, is mine, but it was Rifat Hassan who first wrote that sexual equality in Islam is ontological, not sociological, because God created women and men from the same self. So that is also uh, what I mean by ontic equality. And uh, along somewhat different lines, Badud had noted in her book, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me, that there's no concept of gendered man or woman in the Quran. And um, I described it as you summarized it, that while the Quran recognizes that women and men are biologically different, it doesn't assign biology itself, much less the differences, any kind of gender or moral symbolism. So... What do I mean by this? I mean that the Quran doesn't portray women and men as opposites or men as having and women as lacking certain attributes or women as lesser or defective men or the sexes as unequal or incommensurable, which is what patriarchies do. So to put it more simply, the Quran doesn't establish men as being superior to women by virtue of their biology. In fact, it teaches that God created men and women from the same nafs, made them both khalifa on earth, and tasked them to be one another's awliya, awliya being a plural of wali, a word that means master, authority, custodian, protector, and friend. So based on these considerations, I argue that some differences in the rights that the Quran gives wives and husbands is not evidence of sexual inequality, particularly because the Quran doesn't define rights in terms of sex or gender. In fact, uh, if uh, you read it, it does so relationally. Uh, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, the needy, the poor, the orphan, the wayfarer. And it does so based on existing gender hierarchies in the 7th century. So I want to give just the example of um, uh, the famous uh, reference all the time to men as women's kawamun. Uh, a word that Muslims sometimes translate as being in charge of women, even though the Quran says women and men are each other's awliya. But what's important about this kawamun verse is that the Quran doesn't say that men have the right to be kawamun or that they are kawamun because they are males or because God prefers them to women. It says that men are kawamun to the extent that they provide for women. And this, of course, was at a time when most women weren't wage earners as a rule. And as for the word preferred, as Aziza al-Hibri has pointed out, it refers to the resources of which God gives more to some men than to others. And uh, lest we forget, God also gives more to some women than to some men. Uh, consider the Prophet's first wife, Khatija. So I believe we can similarly read the Quran's provisions on, say, divorce or polygyny and the so-called wife-beating verse in different ways um, if we pay attention to language and context and translation. As for parental rights, uh, the Quran doesn't give fathers any rights. It doesn't give mothers. And in fact, it uh, usually foregrounds what children owe to mothers, taqwa which is another indicator that the Quran doesn't set up Muslim men as patriarchs or heads of the household in a traditional sense. We do. Thank you for that. And I, I think 
uh, I want to talk now about the final chapter because you know in, in our discussion you've you've named a plethora uh, of scholars, um, and you, you know you very clearly um, have have multiple interlocutors that you're engaging with both, you know, in the Muslim community, the the, the non-academic Muslim community, as well as the academic uh, Islamic studies community, um, and so the final chapter of your book um, is about specifically about secular slash feminist critics um, whom you were engaging with and many of those whom would identify as Islamic feminists within the uh, Western Academy. Um, you argue that many of these critics, quote unquote, recycle the mainstream Muslim claim that the Quran is patriarchal and androcentric, end quote. Um, where would you say, you know, that these critics um, fall short? Um, and how can there be a more constructive discussion on these questions uh, between all of the um, people involved? Well, firstly, I said they're not Islamic feminists. Um, Islamic feminism is a category in which uh, people like Wadud, Aziz al-Hibri, Rafiq Hassan, and I have been included. And the way Margot Badran defined it, it was a discourse of, uh, I don't know, I remember completely, but of... Um, equality and rights across the public and private spectrum that derives its mandate from the Quran. Um, the feminists I'm talking about are not Islamic feminists. They are uh, the self-identifiers, third-wave Muslim feminists. Um, so they are not deriving their mandate from the Quran. So that's, no, that's the a crucial thing. distinction. Thank you. Yes. And these uh, secular feminist critics basically maintain that the Quran is uh, patriarchal and androcentric and uh, readings uh, like Wadud's and mine, which are associated with Islamic feminism, are dishonest. Uh, they are textual manipulations and hermeneutical acrobatics. So I'm quoting uh, in order Kisha Ali, Aisha Hadaitullah and Ibrahim Musa. More troublingly for me, Ali and Hadaytullah also question if the Quran is God's word. So to quote Ali, uh, she says, it's, uh, here I'm quoting her, treatment of women as uh, sexually passive and men as sexual actors, of women's bodies as other and men's bodies as normative, poses a challenge to understanding the text as purely divine and transcendent. End quote. As for Hadaytullah, I think she makes a more complex argument about the Quran's divinity. Um, but her conclusion is that if, quote, we cannot be sure that it upholds the justice we seek, then we are left to question whether the Quran is really a divine text. If we do not question the divinity of the Quran, then we are left to question whether God is just, end quote. So in other words, uh, she poses what I've called a false theological paradox, since she pits God's justice against the sanctity of God's word, when there is really no picking between them. As to whether all of us can have uh, more constructive discussions, I certainly can't speak for others. Uh, but on my part, uh, I've offered an extensive critique of what I take to be the hermeneutical and theological fault lines I see in uh, such scholarship. So I'm not sure what more or constructive means here. Would you have any parting words for those of us who are vested in this subject or in this conversation, whether as 
uh, you know, observers in academia or even as confessional believers, what, if, if you were to offer some words to them uh, in terms of navigating these, these, uh, this terrain, what would you say? Um, one of the things uh, perhaps I should say, I don't know if I actually say it in the book, is that although I've written about the Quran, about how we can read the Quran on behalf of women's rights, for me, it's less a primer for rights uh, than it is a lifeline to God. In fact, mm-hmm. about three-fourths of the Quran is about God and about its own sanctity and veracity. Mm. And uh, as I like to note, um, this is a God who doesn't do zulm. And according to Toshihiko Izutsu, the meaning of zulm in the Quran is to transgress against the rights of another. In other words, God's justice is, is circumscribed by God's promise not to transgress against the rights of another. This is a God who forbids compulsion in religion. This is a God who is loving and patient and subtle, uh, but also severe in reckoning. And yet the Quran keeps telling us that mercy and forgiveness precede God's wrath. This is the God that we Muslims are called on to worship. And yet most of us seem to be so hung up when we read the Quran on those few hierarchy verses. So here I also should point out that tellingly there are very few Quranic injunctions about human relationships and that these enjoin justice and virtue, honesty, love, equality, tolerance, humility, forgiveness, generosity, patience. And to rephrase Jacques Derrida, an ethics of responsabilization towards one another. So I feel that one way to arrive at such an ethics might be to clarify the nature of men's rights in the Quran. And that's what I'm currently trying to do uh, for a conference paper. Basically, I'm arguing that most uh, rights in the Quran are neither universal and nor are they contingent on uh, sex uh, gender identities, which is why we could conceivably um, historicize these as a way to de-link the Quran from uh, 7th century forms of male privilege. Um, I think the patriarchy in which uh, the prophet lived, uh, the patriarchy to which uh, God first spoke, um, you know, the kinds of uh, rights men were enjoying then um, could only be enjoyed within that social structure which has disintegrated and disappeared. And I don't believe for a moment that an omniscient God would not have known that this would happen. And uh, we keep claiming that the Quran is a universal text. Well, what does it mean for it to be universal? It means it's come for all times and all places. But uh, this can only happen if we do not reduce it to just one historical context, uh, but continue to search for ways uh, to open up what I call the horizon of ethical possibilities in it uh, until that day when God promises to call all of us to account for what we did with this trust. Thank you so much for that. That was, that was definitely a lot to reflect over. And as my parting question, as my final question, I was going to ask if there's 
anything else that you're that you're working on? You mentioned the the conference paper that you're doing. Is that something that we can look forward to reading soon, or is there another book project on the way? I'd be very curious to know, and I'm sure our, our listeners would be as well. I gave up writing books because I suffer from <laughs> such an obsession when I'm writing that I forget whether it's day or night and years and months fall by and suddenly I realize, whoops, um, all of this time. It's just a, you know, you sort of retreat into a world of your own. And I've, um, as my memory also fades, you know, I'm 70 now. And although in this country Mashallah. they're supposed to be young, I certainly feel my age. I outlived my own grandmother at this point. So as my memory also sort of um, recedes a bit, I find it easier to write uh, shorter pieces. And this paper was actually for a conference on Quranic norms that was to be held in Nuremberg um, in April of this year. And this has been postponed to next May. Um, so that's what's in the cards for now. But uh, of course, you know, I'm, I love writing. I love reading the Quran. So maybe I'll continue to do something now that I'm retiring and I'll be uh, not having that much <laughs> stuff to work on at school. Well, you, you definitely left quite uh, quite amount of literature and work for us to, you know, to think with and to think about. And, and we're, we're all very grateful for you. Um, so thank you so much, um, Professor, uh, for joining us today. There it is, folks. Believing Women in Islam, Unreading Patriarchal Interpretations of the Quran by Asma Barlas, the revised 2019 edition published by the University of Texas Press. Get your hands on it now. Once again, thank you, Dr. Barlas, for joining us. Thank you, Asad. Um, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Take care, everyone. <laughs>